You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. Hi, I'm Professor Marcellino D'Ambrosio, and in this class, the eighth class in the Norms of Catholic Faith, Scripture, Tradition, Magisterium, we're going to be discussing Magisterium. And I have to say at the beginning of this lecture that discussion of the Magisterium is probably the most emotion-charged and sometimes the most confusing topic in this course. You just have to keep in mind all Christians look at Scripture and accept its authority in one way, shape, or form. And all Christians, whether they know it or not, have a tradition, a tradition that guides them in interpreting the Scriptures. Now, there are debates between many Catholics and, and many uh, Protestant Christians about the importance of tradition, how normative it ought to be, etc. But the Orthodox, the, certainly the Anglicans, and many Protestants, increasing numbers of even evangelicals, accept the fact that there are traditional statements and teachers in the past between the New Testament and today that serve as important guides in interpreting Scripture. When we come to magisterium, we really get a, a problem in terms of dividing uh, Christians one from another in terms of their approach to magisterium. Um, the, the, the teaching authority of the church and who has that teaching authority is a controversial issue. Even within Catholicism, it separates those who would be seen as maybe liberals from conservatives, how you deal with the authority of the teaching office, the official teaching office of the church. And that's what the word magisterium really means. It's just a Latin term that means teaching authority or teaching office. And in the Middle Ages, it began to be used frequently and for, for two teaching offices in the church. One was the teaching office of the bishops of the Catholic Church, led by the, the Bishop of Rome, the Pope. The other was the teaching office of the Catholic universities and the theology faculties of the Catholic universities. And it's important to point out that the word was used for both of those realities, both of those teaching offices. But there was never any confusion about which teaching office had ultimate authority. There were two different kinds of teaching offices. The university theology faculties that exercised a magisterium and the individual theology professors who exercised magisterium or a teaching office, that office was certainly subordinate to the bishops of the Catholic Church. They were commissioned by the bishops of the Catholic Church and they, they were consulted. They interpreted doctrinal statements and taught them. They were also consulted in matters of, dis of dispute and controversy. But the ultimate authority, teaching authority, belonged, of course, to the bishops. So since the 19th century, we don't use the word magisterium to refer to theologians teaching authority, to avoid confusion. And it's important to understand, right now, the word magisterium is used to talk about the official apostolic teaching authority of the bishops of the Catholic Church that are, of course, in communion with the Bishop of Rome, the Pope. That's what it means. Now, it's important to point this out. Bishops shouldn't be thought of as branch managers or franchise managers of the Catholic Church. You know, if we're used to American business, we, we understand those, that kind of business concept. But that's not what we have when it comes to the relationship between the bishops and the Pope and the bishops and each other. Each bishop, it's true, who is an ordinary of a diocese, a bishop who has been given pastoral authority for a city, for example, the, the Bishop of Dallas or the Bishop of Fort Worth or the Archbishop of New York. 
they do have local jurisdiction over one particular area. But they're not just governmental officers. Bishops really have three very important roles. Governmental officer or pastor of a distinct flock is one of their roles. But the second role is they are a successor of the, of the apostles as teachers. And their teaching authority, their magisterium, really is, extends to all Christians. All the bishops together teach and have responsibility to teach all Christians. That's an important point. And the third thing is, of course, their priesthood. They share in the fullness of the priesthood of Christ. And as priests, of course, they can exercise their priesthood anywhere in the world and celebrate the Eucharist and hear confessions to forgive sin. So we're talking now about one of their three roles, their, their teaching authority. And together, the, the bishops are responsible to teach all Catholics, not just those in their diocese. The magisterium, there's a word that's used to talk about the magisterium's authority, and that is that they are the authentic teachers, the authentic interpreters of Scripture. And the word authentic, if you read it in various magisterial documents, like I've assigned for you to read if you're taking credit for this course, that word authentic doesn't mean genuine, because many times there are um, theologians and, and others, spiritual writers, who certainly teach genuine doctrine. But uh, authentic means officially authoritative. Okay, that's what authentic means. So the, the, the officially authoritative teaching, the normative teaching in the Catholic Church is exercised by the bishops in communion with the Pope. Okay, so the, these, um, one, these bishops, those who, who are exercising the magisterium, who are in communion with the Pope, they are teachers endowed with the authority of Christ. That's what Lumen Gentium, number 25, says. Lumen Gentium is the apostolic, uh, or the, the dogmatic constitution on the church of Vatican II. The Council of Trent, back in the 16th century, said this. It says, it belongs to Holy Mother Church to judge the true sense of the scriptures. I like that a whole lot. Holy Mother Church is referring, of course, in this context, to the officers of the church, the bishops of the church. It's the magisterium, the, the bishop's teaching office, that judges the true sense of the scriptures. And what I like about this statement is I think it helps us understand something about magisterium. We have judges in America. We have various branches of government. We have uh, you know, the executive power, we have the legislative power, and we have the, the court system in this country. And the court system is not supposed to legislate, although some people accuse judges of legislating from the bench. They're not supposed to invent constitutional rights, although sometimes they're accused of doing that. But they're supposed to interpret the law as it is written, and especially they're supposed to interpret the Constitution. So we have various levels of judicial authority, you know, local federal courts, state courts, and ultimately we have the U.S. Supreme Court, and the buck stops there. It's the U.S. Supreme Court's job in a controversial issue to interpret the Constitution to judge the true sense of the Constitution and to apply it to today. Now, the, the Supreme Court, although they're obviously good judges, they're not endowed with any charism from the Holy Spirit to help them in their job, so they're fallible. But what I'm trying to explain here is the role of the magisterium is not to invent new truth. Scripture and tradition together conveys to us the truth that comes from Christ and the Apostles, the Gospel, the Word of God. The, the bishops, the magisterium's role is not to re receive new revelations because the fullness of revelation came in Christ. The role of the magisterium is a role of judging, of determining what truly is compatible with scripture and tradition and what isn't. 
how do we interpret scripture and tradition for a particular circumstance today? Okay, so they have the final and ultimate authority to make that judgment. There are theologians and other writers who have opinions, and those opinions are oftentimes very helpful. Those opinions oftentimes help the magisterium to make a judgment. But the magisterium's role is to be the ultimate judge of what is compatible with tradition and what isn't, and to teach authoritatively in the name of Christ and the apostles. Okay, so JP2, John Paul II, uh, if you read the Christian faith, 265, he says that the magisterium has the delicate task of discerning what is truly compatible with the tradition. And it is a delicate task, and it is a discernment, and it is a challenge in a modern world where new issues are arising all the time. For example, in morality, there are new things that never had to be dealt with a hundred years ago regarding things like, you know, test tube babies, uh, human cloning, you know, all sorts of different kinds of things that have come up in the last hundred years based on technology. Uh, or other issues that have come up that, that are based on modern culture, uh, like the rise of, of, of an equality of women in society. You know, how do we deal with that regarding you know, what women can do and can't do in the church's life? Uh, how do we deal with the, the sexual revolution um, and all these kinds of things? Well, the magisterium has a delicate task of interpreting the scripture and tradition in light of all these modern developments and challenges. Um, and it's important to understand, when we, when we spoke before about the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court has an official authority, but there's no charism necessarily there. Of course, we would hope that the best judges in the land, the most impartial, would be picked, but there's no supernatural assistance that's guaranteed. These, these ladies and gentlemen are doing a, a, a temporal, secular task, a very important one, to guide a nation. But we understand that the magisterium of the Catholic Church has been endowed with a charism by the Holy Spirit, a charism of truth to aid them and, and guide them in, in discerning the truth and in interpreting the truth. So it's a charism. We're not just talking about officers, you know, functionaries. We're talking about, when we talk about the bishops and the Holy Father, we're talking about men who have been endowed with a charism. Um, that charism does not exempt them from human failings personally. There are many people, it's important to understand when Thomas Aquinas, the great 13th century theologian, when he discussed charisms, he discussed and taught something about charisms that I think has been the experience of many, many of us. And that is, charism is a gift given by the Holy Spirit, a supernatural gift, to aid someone in building up the church. A charism can be given to someone who is not particularly holy, or who may be, start off being holy, but may, may fall in a very serious way in terms of their personal sin and their personal life. And their fall can happen even while they're still exercising a valid charism. This is a very, very important point. It was a point that had to be dealt with in the early church because right away we see Peter and we see Judas uh, fall very significantly. Peter, as a matter of fact, we're going to talk about Peter a little bit later, but, but Peter is, is probably, it's one of my favorite characters in the New Testament, of course, I think everybody's, because we can identify with Peter, the impetuous Peter who's excited. You know, who, who, at one moment, he's like David, his whole heart is given to Christ. In another moment, he, he's cowering in fear and denying Christ. And, and uh, you know, you have to admire in his courage to leap out, but you also can identify with his weakness. Well, the Lord chooses weak human beings as vehicles of his power. And, and so, from the very beginning, we've had to deal with the fact that uh, the officers of the church endow with charisms, wh whether they be the, the bishops or even people with a charism of healing, for example, um, or another kind of charism of great preaching. Um, many of us have experienced the scandal and the letdown of finding priests uh, 
hearing about priests or, or other lay people with great charisms of the Holy Spirit who have served God very greatly, and yet we find that they fall into adultery and pedophilia or you know usury, uh, you know uh, some, uh, some sort of uh, problem with money in the church, various kinds of you know terrible things. The fact of the matter is this: uh, this is not good. But the Lord has given charisms to people for the sake of others, and they oftentimes may not take advantage of all the grace to grow themselves, but still God uses them to bless others. So it's important to understand that the bishops have received a charism, and that charism does not place them over the Word of God. They are clearly the magisterium of the Catholic Church, the official teaching authority, the bishops and the Pope and their teaching capacity, are under the Word of God, just like the Supreme Court is under the Constitution. The Supreme Court is supposed to do nothing but interpret the Constitution. They are bound by the Constitution and by um, the, 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 the whole wonderful judicial tradition and legislative tradition of America. You know, they, when they try to interpret the Constitution, they look at judicial precedents, you know. And, and the same way is with, with the bishops of the Catholic Church. The bishops trying to discern the truth and apply the truth and judge it today are bound by the scriptures and they're bound by tradition. Tradition with a capital T. The tradition that is universal. The tradition that comes from the apostles and is carried through to today. So they are clearly humble and that's made very clear in the Second Vatican Council. In fact, I think it was part of the, the goal of the council to clarify that. Um, because one of the great concerns of non-Catholic Christians is that the Word of God is bypassed for human traditions, just like in the Pharisees' day, and that the bishops uh, of the Catholic Church te teaching human traditions and the, and the uh, Pope are, are invalidating God's Word and superseding God's Word. Not the case. You may disagree with particular judgments and doctrines of the Catholic Church, but the theory here, and I, you know, I personally believe, of course, as a Catholic, that the practice when it comes to doctrinal dogmatic statements, the theory is that the, the bishops are clearly, the magisterium is subordinate to, to the Word of God. It's in a position of service to the Word of God, of interpreting and applying the Word of God. And the Word of God for Catholics is Scripture together with tradition. So it's a conservative office. The, the role of the bishop in the Catholic Church as a teacher, it's a conservative one. It's to guard the deposit of the faith, not to add or to subtract to it, uh, subtract from it, add to it or subtract from it. You can see this in Lumen Gentium from Vatican II, number 25. You can see it in, um, in the Christian faith, number 179. Uh, there's a great, a wonderful document called On the Ecclesial Vocation of the Theologian. And uh, it's Donum Veritatis is the Latin short name for it. Number 37 makes this very clear, that the, that the magisterium's role is to guard and to protect. It's also to protect legitimate theological pluralism. What does that mean? Well, there is certain non-negotiable things in the Catholic tradition, and then there's other areas where there's plenty of freedom for difference of opinion, and difference of style, and difference of expression. And I think very many people think that the Catholic Church is a monolithic thing. Everyone has to march lockstep with the same style, the same thought pattern. Not so. We are not a cult. And in the Catholic Church, you find tremendous diversity from the beginning. Just look at the different religious orders. You know, you have on the one hand the Jesuits, um, and on the other hand you have the Trappists, cloister Trappists, and you have Marinol missionaries, and you have diocesan priests, and you have sisters of all different uh, styles of, of spirituality, of lifestyle, of habit. Uh, and and this, so you have tremendous amount of diversity in living the Christian life. And in theology there are different 
tendencies and approaches, and there always have been. Going back to four Gospels, as we talked about earlier, going back to the four senses of Scripture, you have people who focus somewhat differently in different aspects, different language, different styles. You know, there are some today who have exuberant in liturgy, very exuberant masses with contemporary music, and others who prefer Latin and Gregorian chant. And part of the role of the magisterium when it comes to teaching is to preserve legitimate diversity because there's always somebody in the church who thinks that their particular style and way of expression is identified with the universal deposit of the faith and therefore everyone needs to buy it and, part, and everyone needs to be normed by it. And part of the role of the pope and the bishops is to say, no, this is universal, this is something that everyone is bound by, this in the, here and this means of expression is legitimate diversity. So, you know, it, it's, it, there's kind of a referee dimension in some, some ways to the bishop's role and the pope's role that we see throughout history. So it's guarding legitimate freedom and drawing the limits, showing the lines. Outside this line, you cannot go as a Catholic. Within this circle, there's lots of room for different things to happen. That's part of the role of the bishop. So you can think of the bishop you know, and, and the pope and the magisterium either as a Supreme Court or as umpires in a game. There's, I think there's a lot of uh, great uh, parallels there. All analogies limp, but I think those two illustrations help us understand the role of the magisterium. Now let's talk a little bit about the complexity of the magisterium. Uh, and, and right before that, I just want to point out, what's, I want to emphasize again, what is the ground of this authority? Why do we think that the bishops of the Catholic Church and the Pope, as opposed to other re wonderful religious leaders out there, there are great uh, uh, leaders and preachers in Protestant Christianity who have charisms to move people and touch people. Uh, there are wonderful Orthodox bishops out there, um, and uh, there are leaders of the Episcopalian Church. There are various leaders out there that we do not recognize as sharing in the Catholic magisterium. Why, what is it that, that makes the Catholic bishops and the Pope ca the bearers of this authority as, as we understand it? Well, it, it's what we call apostolic succession. We understand from the beginning that the, the Lord chose the apostles. From the apostles, he chose Peter and gave him a special role, and we'll talk about that in, a, in the next class as we talk about infallibility. But in, in selecting Peter, um, he gave structure and he gave a center to the, to, to the college of the apostles, to the group, the fellowship of the apostles. These 12, and why 12? The 12 tribes of Israel. Christ is showing us that he's founding a new Israel. So these 12 are the founders of a new nation, of a holy nation, of, of the, the Israel, the new Israel that is the church. And they have a center. They have a visible, certainly Christ is their center while they're alive, while he's alive in this world, in the flesh, prior to the, the, his death and resurrection, prior to the ascension. He's with them bodily. But he knows that he's going. And so he appoints Peter. He gives Peter a different name. And Peter is the center of this college of the apostles. And we see in the book of Acts that it actually even says in the first few chapters of Acts, when, like at Pentecost, it speaks about Peter and the eleven. Peter has a special role as spokesman of the twelve. And we find in Galatians when Paul himself has a unique, extraordinary experience of Christ on the road to Damascus and is therefore designated as an apostle, as he says, apostle out of the normal course of birth. He did not walk with Jesus and watch him minister like the others did. But nonetheless, he had a visible encounter with the risen Christ on the road to Damascus and was designated, therefore, as an apostle. He felt very clearly that his call was directly from Christ, 
that he did not need to consult with other apostles. He was their equal, but he did need to talk to Cephas or Peter. So he went to Jerusalem and spent several days with Peter. And even though he corrects Peter's, uh, what he believes to be uh, Peter's failure of nerve and inconsistency in his personal behavior, he recognizes, as every book of Scripture seems to do in the New Testament, the special role of Peter. Now, Peter and the, all the apostles, of course, died, but they passed on their authority to others. Peter died in Rome. So we see that the bishop of Rome is being Peter's successor. And all throughout the Christian world, the bishops transferred their authority to those who succeeded them. And that transfer was a number, there are different ways to understand that transfer. It, it is not some simple hierarchical, official, uh, kind of a bureaucratic thing to transfer uh, power and authority to a new bishop. There are different dimensions to it. There's the laying on of hands and the prayer for the charism to come, the charism of the Spirit. If you think about Elijah and Elisha, there, there was a, a living relationship between the two, but there was also a, a, a transfer of charism that happened when Elisha left. Elijah left and, and Elisha was, was there. But Elisha had lived with Elijah. And new bishops, those who succeed to, to, to the bishop's uh, authority, they have been discipled, they have been mentored, they have lived in the, in the tradition and have been taught by the, the bishops before them. So there's a transfer of knowledge and, and experience, and there's also a transfer and an impartation of a charism. So the, the, this apostolic succession is a personal transfer of knowledge, of teaching authority, and also the power of the Holy Spirit this chain of ordinations that goes back to Peter and to the, to the uh, first apostles. The thing is that all bishops who receive their, their, their orders are ordained by other bishops. They have to exercise their authority in communion with the successor of Peter. That's apostolic succession, okay? And that apostolic succession keeps the church on track. It keeps the tradition and the, teaching, and the magisterial teaching authority on track. Now, Magisterium is a diversified reality. If you think about the, the system, the, the judicial system of the United States, it's a very diversified reality. There are different levels of judgments going on. There are daily judgments going on in courts all over the United States. And then there are more important courts of appeals. And then there are even still more important courts. And finally, there's the Supreme Court that has ultimate authority to interpret the Constitution. And we have a similar situation in the Catholic Church. We have local magisterium, there's local daily teaching going on in all the dioceses around the world. There's universal teaching that goes on uh, on a daily basis, but, and also in extraordinary events. And that's what we need to understand, the difference between the local magisterium, the universal magisterium. And also, there's ordinary magisterial teaching, and then there's extraordinary magisterial teaching, things that happen only once in a while because of extraordinary circumstances and have extraordinary degrees of, of authority and binding power. So let's just look for a minute on the diversity of, of the uh, magisterial teaching. First of all, let's distinguish local from universal. What's local magisterium? Well, the bishop gets up and reads and, and preaches, uh, reads the scriptures and then preaches a homily on Sunday. Well, that homily is an exercise of his local magisterium. He's teaching his flock in Dallas or in Philadelphia or in South Bend or wherever he is, he's teaching his flock in a local way, okay? Now, sometimes bishops will write a pastoral letter to their flock, 
and be teaching and exhorting. That's an expression of the local magisterium of the Catholic Church. Sometimes groups of bishops will get together, such as the bishops in the state of Maryland at one point in time, because there are three different dioceses. The three of them got together, who had jurisdiction in the state, and made a statement about capital punishment and about a law that was being considered in the state of Maryland. Um, there, there's regional conferences, there's the National Council of Catholic Bishops who get together twice a year and they'll come out with pastoral letters and pastoral statements and those pastoral statements are very valuable and they're meant and they're addressed to all Catholics in the United States but still the United States is not the whole world and so even a group of bishops as numerous as the Catholic bishops of the, here in, in US they are still exercising a local magisterium of the Catholic Church okay and, and they, what they do, of course, they can't, individual bishops can't exercise their magisterium completely on their own. Their teaching always has to be in communion with the teaching of all the other bishops around the world. And, this, and the Holy Father, the Bishop of Rome, is a touchstone of that universal episcopacy. So there are bishops who have true episcopal orders. There are Catholic bishops uh, that, that are true bishops that have the fullness of the priesthood, but they are in schism with the Bishop of Rome. They are in schism with the Catholic Church. We would, we would see the, the, wonderful, the very venerable Orthodox bishops around the world, from Eastern Orthodox churches, to be in this situation. Now, they have two orders, but we would not see them as exercising the magisterium of the Catholic Church because they're not in full visible communion with the Pope, the Bishop of Rome, and with the other Catholic bishops in communion with him. Okay, so that's the local magisterium. Let's talk about the universal magisterium for a minute. The universal magisterium can either be universal episcopal magisterium or the universal papal magisterium. And let me talk about the pope for just a minute. The, the pope is, has three responsibilities that are very significant and we need to distinguish them. The pope is the bishop of the city of Rome. Just like the city of Dallas has a bishop, so the city of Rome has a bishop and that happens to be John Paul II as I speak today. Um, but that bishop of Rome has all the duties of a local ordinary. He has to care for the people of that diocese and make sure they're being taken care of properly. He has a local jurisdictional responsibility. He, but he, has, he wears a second hat. He is the patriarch of the Western Church, sometimes called the Latin Rite Church or the Roman Rite of the Catholic Church. And as such, he, he has responsibility for the, cult, the, the distinctive culture, liturgical tradition, pastoral care of the Western Church, which is the largest, because uh, we have had a schism back in the 11th century between the Eastern, most of the Eastern churches and the Western Church, the, the Latin Rite of the Catholic Church is the largest. 95% of Catholics are Latin Rite Catholics, but we have Eastern patriarchs. We have, there are 21 different Eastern churches or groups that are in full visible communion with the Bishop of Rome. Some of them would be the Maronite Church, mainly based in the Middle East, in Lebanon and Syria. There is the various Byzantine Rite churches. The Melkite church is from the, the Middle East. But we have the, you know, the, the Ukrainian church from the Ukraine that looks very much like the, the, the Russian church in all, the Russian Orthodox church in all of its uh, ways of worship. But there, the bishop, the metropolitan who is the head of that church is in full visible communion with Rome. So there are different patriarchs who have large, areas of authority over many people. The, the Maronite Patriarch has a lot of authority over the Maronites in, all around the world, although he lives in, in Lebanon. But, so the Pope has that kind of authority in the Catholic Church of the West. 
But there's one final authority that he has that, that is unique, and that is, as successor of Peter, he has teaching and pastoral authority for the entire Catholic world. Okay? So that's why every time he teaches, he's, his magisterium is unique because it's always universal magisterium. He's always speaking um, as pastor and teacher of the whole church. So for that reason, everything that the Pope does is part of the universal magisterium of the Catholic Church. Okay, he is the chief teacher and universal teacher in Christendom, as, as we understand it. What we're going to do in the next class is we're going to look more closely at the different ways that the Pope teaches, different levels of teaching authority by the Pope, and we're going to begin talking about the, the hot issue of infallibility. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.